Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Zechariah chapter 10. Verse 1, ask ye of the rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone, grass in the field. That word bright clouds, or the Greek word, that's the Hebrew word that's translated bright clouds, is used only one other time in scripture, and it's over in the book of Job, and it's translated lightnings. So this word bright clouds is certainly connected with and referring to power, the exercise of power. But you remember also that in the Old Testament it talks about the glory of the Lord appearing unto the people time and time and time again as a cloud. So if we take these truths, these things that we know about the words that are used, we could say that in response to our prayers for the rain, the moving of the Holy Ghost, it would be a manifestation of his presence and a display of his power. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Folks, the last days, or at least the last of the last days, are days of the Holy Ghost. Days of the power of God on display. Days of his presence being manifested. Now I want you to look with me also to Haggai chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. And this again is talking about latter, uh, latter day events. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now the latter house he's talking about can't be the second temple. The Bible says that when Solomon's temple was dedicated, the spirit of the Lord, the glory of God, the glory cloud, filled the, the sanctuary so that the priest couldn't stand and minister. The power of God, the glory of God was in such display that they had no physical strength. Well, the Bible tells us about how that after that temple, Solomon's temple was destroyed, that there was a second temple that was built, or the temple was rebuilt, I guess would be a better way to say it. And the Bible says that there were some that were old enough to have seen Solomon's temple, and then they saw the dedication or the rededication to the second temple, and they wept because the glory of the Lord didn't fill that temple. The glory of God was nowhere in manifestation, no way to be seen. So he can't be talking about the second temple. At the point in time that this was written, the second temple had not been rebuilt yet. And so there was no way for them to, uh, there's no way for the second temple to meet the criteria that Haggai is talking about. Well, we also know that Herod's temple came along and it was a beautiful building. You remember the disciples pointed it out to Jesus and talked about how beautiful it was. But because it wasn't dedicated to God, because the temple was made by Herod with a political purpose in mind, trying to appease the people, as beautiful as it might have been, or as the disciples thought that it was at least, Jesus scoffed at it. And then he predicted, you remember, that not one stone would be left upon another. 
that it would be destroyed. And in, in 70 AD, it was destroyed. So if he's not talking about Herod's temple, and he's not talking about the second temple, then what temple is he talking about? He's talking about the church. The Bible says that we are the temple of the living God, that he lives in us, which was always God's plan, but not many of the people, prophets included, understood that, it seems. So when he talks about the glory of this latter temple, being greater house, the, the glory of this latter house, being greater than of the former, and in this place will I give peace, he's talking about the power of God and the display of God's power in the church. He's talking about us. Now when it says the, great, the glory shall be greater than the, the former, in the latter house it shall be greater than in the former, there's two things that he could be talking about there. He could be talking about Solomon's temple, which we just mentioned was filled with the glory of God at the dedication of that temple. Or he could be talking about the church in the early days. We see evidence of the power of God in great display in the beginning of the book of Acts. It talks about how the people were healed. It talks about that how people were healed even by Peter's shadow as he passed by. And there were many signs and wonders that took place, many displays of God's power in his presence. So he could be talking about that. He could be saying that the glory of the Lord in the temple or in the church, the people of God in the last days would be greater than it was in the beginning when the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Either way, it refers to a great manifestation of God, a great display of his presence, or manifestation of his presence and a great display of his power. The days that we're living in, we really could be on the cusp or right at the edge of Jesus coming back. There are no more prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Everything is in place to where the church could very simply be waiting for the shout from heaven to come up to Jesus. Because of that, because of the, the last of the last days that I believe we're living in, one of the most important things I believe for the church and for us to keep in our sights is being led of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe there's ever been a time where it's more important, not only for us as believers, to walk in victory, the victory that Jesus purchased for us through his, his death, burial, and resurrection, but also to be able to hear the voice of God to help other people. And as such, there are some things I want to talk to you about for the next couple of weeks. Things that we need to do. Things that we need to incorporate into our daily lives, our daily walk with God. So that we're in position to hear from him and obey what he tells us to do. 
Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us, and that's by the inward witness. Folks, how many people do you know in the body of Christ today that even know that it's possible to be led by the Holy Ghost, much less are fulfilling the criteria where we can be? So I want to talk to you for the next couple of weeks about things that I believe are most important for us to incorporate into our daily lives, our daily walk with God. I want to point out one thing here in verse 8, Haggai chapter 2 verse 8. In the middle of God talking about the glory of the Lord, the greater glory for the last day church, he says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. Why would Jesus or why would the Holy Spirit identify wealth with the glory of the Lord, the latter-day glory of the Lord? Folks, it's very simply, I don't think we have all the answers. I certainly don't have them. But there's no way that you can deny that finances, financial miracles, financial provision is part of the last day work of God. I know in, in many of the parts of the modern day church, it's easy just to say that that's not relevant or not important. But folks, if this prophet Haggai was speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Ghost thought it was important. And this is not the only place that this occurs. Look with me to James chapter 5. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. Let's start in verse 7. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Talking about the same thing that Isaiah, or that uh, Zechariah was talking about that we just read in chapter 10. The rain, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Here this rain is identified as the moving of the Holy Ghost or the working of the Holy Ghost. And it tells us the results in Zechariah chapter 10, it talked about the grass in the field. Here it talks about the precious fruit of the earth. Now what is God considered to be the precious fruit of the earth? It's talking about people. The only thing God's ever cared about was people. And as a part of his concern or provision for his people, he made an earth with resources in such abundance that we'll never be able to exhaust them. I don't care what the climate change people say. This earth is going to stand not only through this age, for, but for another thousand years. I don't personally believe that there's any way for man to exhaust any of the resources of the earth. So here he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. 
Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Now back up to verse 1. Let's get this in context. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. You shall eat your it shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped together treasure for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. And then it's be careful, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. These first six verses of, Hebrew, of uh, James chapter 5 are talking about deceptive business practices. And it identifies the rich as having defrauded others to come to their place of wealth. Folks, what do we see going on around us with this big tech, big business situation that's trying to rule the world through merchandising? I think, it seems to me at least, that some of the things that James is talking about here that might be fulfilled by big corporate activity. Now there's another scripture in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So it's talking about money. And then it says, the last part of the verse says, and the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. The reason that I'm bringing this up, folks, is because I believe that we need to settle the money issue once and for all. I know that people struggle with money. I know that it's a hard place and a hard time for a lot of people. But money is one of the first ways that God ever starts dealing with you. Why in the world would God identify financial provision or finances in any way, wealth in any measure, when he talks about the last days, unless that's a part of the last day work of the Holy Ghost. The verse I just quoted to you from Proverbs, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Well, when is that to take place? If it takes place after the rapture, the church won't receive any benefit from it. So it can't be then. So when is it talking about the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just? Does that not imply a transfer of wealth in some way or another? Does that not imply a changing of hands of wealth? Well, if it doesn't, then what does it mean? Could it be that God has plans for the church before he comes, before the rapture, that includes some type of transfer of money and monetary purposes 
Jesus talked about more talked more about money than he did love. I want to point out a couple of things that he said in Matthew chapter six. Verse 19, it says, Lay up not lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth rust doth corrupt. Let me try that from the beginning again. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Folks, this is why the money issue is such an important thing. Because our heart has to be right toward money. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We all have to make a choice. We're going to choose to serve God or we're going to choose to serve money. Folks, if Jesus is speaking by the will of the Father, and if he's not, then he's a liar, and that can't be. But if Jesus is speaking here according to the will of his Father, then God is saying that every person has to make that choice. Every person has to make the choice between the place that God holds or the place that money holds in their lives. Only one can be your top priority. He goes on to say, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cupid unto his stature? And why take thought for the raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like unto one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and, is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. He's talking about financial provision. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Jesus is talking about attitudes. He's talking about where your heart is. Now, folks, it's a, it's a true statement. It's a fact that applies to every one of us and every person that's in the body of Christ worldwide. 
The fact is, you can identify what you care about most by looking where your money is. Every person can identify what their heart's really in by what their money supports. I know of people that have struggled for years and years and years over money trouble, particularly where the tithe is concerned. And Jesus said it all comes down to your attitude. If Jesus has your heart, then that means he has your money. But if Jesus doesn't have your money, then your heart is in something else. Even though you may be saved and heaven is your home, your eternal destination, it still comes down to the attitude we have concerning money. I'm going to read now from Luke chapter 16, verse 1. And Jesus said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Folks, this is not a parable. Jesus said it was a certain person. So this thing that he's going to identify or describe really happened. And he called him in and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. Then the steward said unto himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to, to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do that when I am put out of thy stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called unto him every one of his Lord's debtors and said unto the first, How much do you owe my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe him? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore or eighty. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than, any, than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends out of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now folks, don't read too much into this, or don't read something that's not there. He's not commending this man, the Lord, that brought his steward in and was examining his steward. He's not commending him for his evil doing. And this doesn't represent God. The, the Lord in this story that's being described doesn't represent God. Because God would be unjust if he approved of stealing, which the steward just did. So what is it talking about? Jesus is simply making the statement that just as the man used his stewardship, his position, to provide for himself for the future, in the same way, we should use the money that is entrusted unto us to provide for our eternity. That just simply means give God your heart where it comes to money. He goes on to say, let me start again with verse 9. And I say unto you, make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. 
He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is telling us the same thing that we just read in Matthew chapter 6. Our heart's going to belong to either money or God. Which one depends on you? Now I want you to see with me another event in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, it tells us about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 17. When he was gone forth and into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Well, he wants the right thing, doesn't he? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. He says there's only one thing this guy's missing. Well, what is he missing? He doesn't have treasure in heaven. So what does that mean from what we've just seen that Jesus told the disciples? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Since he doesn't have treasure in heaven, his heart's really not toward God. Now, folks, I want you to realize that the money's not the problem here. Jesus loved him before he ever told him to sell what he had and give to the poor. And really, if Jesus were to appear at any, to any one of us and say there's only one thing that you lack in your life, I would consider that doing pretty good. So this man is doing everything but one thing in the right way or in the appropriate manner. The one thing he doesn't have is treasure in heaven. How does Jesus say to get treasure in heaven? To give. To turn loose of some of the money that in this man's case has him bound. He looks like he has everything. He is a rich young ruler. But in fact, he doesn't have anything. Verse 22, and he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. I would submit to you folks that the possessions had him. And that's the only thing Jesus says that he's missing or lacking in his life. From being who God wants him to be. And really, in this situation, Jesus is offering him the opportunity to be with him, to follow him. Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? 
And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Well, we see now what the attitude of the rich young ruler was. The reason he couldn't give up his possessions is because he trusted in those to keep him safe and to make a way for him here on this earth for the rest of his life. But did you notice that the disciples were astonished at what Jesus said? When Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, didn't say it's impossible, but he said it was hard. The disciples were astonished. Now, why would they be astonished? Because everything about Abraham's blessing that belonged to the Jews pertained to and had to do with wealth. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It came to me as a great surprise to find out that the Jews don't believe much in heaven. Their relationship with God through the covenant that he made with Abraham, their father, really had very little to do in their eyes with heaven. It was all a transaction that took place here on the earth. Jesus, uh, God said to Abraham in the beginning, if you follow me, I'll do certain things for you. One of those was he would bless them. Well, the Bible says the blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So God promised riches to Abraham, and Abraham realized those riches. And so the, the disciples, along with the rest of the Jewish people, recognized that God being for them or with them would produce great wealth. Now these guys are not standing there putting their, tucking on their, their clothes, sticking their chest out, and saying, yeah, they need to be poor like us because to be poor is to be spiritual. They're instead astonished that Jesus would say that riches can hinder you from entering into the kingdom of God. So Jesus identifies what he meant. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 26, and they were astonished beyond measure. saying among themselves, who then can be saved? They considered wealth to be a direct result and a very important part of their relationship with God. Folks, God doesn't have a problem with you and I having money. He has a problem with money having us. I'm going to remind you of one of the things that brought about this idea in Abraham and his relationship with God. You remember there was a point in time after Lot separated from his uncle Abraham. What they had was too much. The servants began fighting among themselves. And so Abraham told Lot, you pick way, which way you want to go and we'll go in the opposite direction. 
And Lot picked to go to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. And over a process of time, the city of Sodom was taken captive or sacked, really. And Lot and all of his possessions and everything he had was taken captive by these people that, that attacked the city along with everybody else. And Abraham heard of it and he made up an army out of his servants and he went and destroyed the attacking force and rescued Lot and everybody that was with him. And he comes back after this victory and it tells us, I'm beginning reading in verse 17 of Genesis 14. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of some place and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered him in thine enemies into his hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham is giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he has. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take thy goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Here's Abraham's attitude toward money. He knows that God's the one that made him rich. He knows that the blessing of God helped him to win this battle. And he has decided ahead of time. He had purposed in his heart that he would under no circumstances take anything from this conquest because he was not willing for anybody to say, in this case the king of Sodom, to say that he had made Abram rich. In other words, Abram is willing to accept the blessing of the Lord and only the blessing of the Lord. And God made him one of the richest men on the face of the earth. Go with me now to Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Do you see that phrase, after these things? The Bible is written to a great degree to read like a story. Anytime you see a, a chapter start with the word and, it's connecting things in the previous chapter to what's about to be said. Here it tells us even more specifically after these things, after Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, the Lord promised him even more. Here's the Lord's promise to honor Abram's heart. And folks, you can't find anywhere in the, in the text of the scripture where God had told Abram to tithe. This seems to be something that Abram has endeavored to do or decided to do of his own will, independent of any instruction that God might have given him. 
In other words, the tithe showed Abram's heart. And that's why God incorporated the tithe into the, the instruction given to the Jews because it was a memorial. It signified that Abram's heart, Abram who becomes Abraham in the next chapter, it signifies that his heart was in the things of God because that's where his treasure was. See, the Bible is not just a command, uh, I'm, the tithe is not just a command for us, but rather it points back to Abram's heart. God wants us to have the same heart as Abram had. That's what he's talking about. You can't serve God in money. Abram comes to this position, apparently, just through the relationship that he had with God, the creator of the universe. God has appeared to him time after time. He's given him instructions. And every time Abram has followed those instructions, it worked to his benefit. So really the Bible is telling us that we should have the same heart as Abram. And here's the promise made to Abram as a result of him tithing, not through some instruction. It's not like God says, now when Melchizedek comes by, I know you don't know who he is, but treat him like he's me. Abraham had no instruction whatsoever, no commandment concerning the tithe in any way whatsoever. Well, then why do the Jews have instruction for that? Why does the Bible tell us, tell the people of God, that we should pay tithes? Because God's looking for the same attitude of heart as Abram had. And folks, this is why the disciples were astonished when Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to be saved. They're remembering things like this. They're remembering that the blessing of Abraham which is enumerated or specified a little bit more in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the first 14 verses of the chapter. It talks about how that you'll be plenteous in goods, you'll be blessed coming in and blessed going out, blessed in the basket in the store, blessed in the city in the field. It identifies God's willingness to prosper his people who are obedient to the word that he gave. So when the Jews hear, when the disciples hear Jesus talk about the difficulty of a rich man entering into heaven, they're astonished out of measure. Their question is, well, then who can be saved? They expect all the people of God to, to be wealthy. They expected that all of the people of God would be, have abundant provision. So when Jesus seems to be speaking against riches, they're floored. They're stunned. How can this be? Abraham promised a blessing or passed down a blessing to the Jews that included wealth and riches. But again, Jesus is talking about an attitude of the heart.
in Malachi chapter 3. Verse 6, God said, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? He's dealing with the attitude of the people of Israel. And they're under a curse. They brought themselves under a curse by not obeying the command the memorial of Abraham's tithe became a command to the Jews. And they have failed to keep that command saying it doesn't do any good to pay tithes. And God is telling them to return. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? God asked them the question, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? And the answers are in tithes and offerings. God's not looking for money. The silver and gold belongs to him. He's looking for people's hearts. And notice here in this example in Malachi chapter 3, how their hearts have turned away from God. When God said, will a man rob God? He's not talking about, are you going to rob me of your tithes? He's saying, are you going to rob me from your hearts? Because Abraham paid tithes because of God's blessing. Because God had been so good to him. But the Jews here in Malachi chapter 3 are doing just the opposite. They're saying, what good does it do to pay your tithes? What good does it do? Well, what good does it do? It puts your heart in heaven. It puts your heart in eternal things. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have you robbed thee? Have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, and for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the fields. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice verses 10 and 11. These are unique verses unlike anything else we find anywhere in Scripture. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room to receive it. Only place in Scripture where God tells you to prove him only place in scripture where God tells you to put him to the test. You can't find it any other place. So God says, put me to the test. See if I won't pour you out a blessing that there's not room to receive it. Now folks, I'll come back to this a little bit more in, in a few minutes. 
But he, he's got to be talking about more than just financial blessing. He's got to be talking about more than just paying your tithes brings financial blessing. It's a blessing that, that goes beyond just finances. We don't ever have to be concerned that the bank calls us up and says, we can't take any more money into your account. I'm sorry, you've just put too much money into our bank, so you're going to have to take it somewhere else. Now, I know they didn't have banks like we do in the day that this was written. But the equivalent would be God telling them that you can't build barns big enough to hold what I'll give you. Now in verse 11, here's another unique thing about God's promise to bless us as a result of paying their tithes. And that is, notice he said, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. This is the only place in scripture where God ever says he'll do something about the devil for you. Every other place it talks about our interaction with the devil, it's us exercising authority. It's us standing on the word to remove the devil's work in our lives. This is the only place where God says he'll do something about the devil for you. And that's pertaining to your money. I'm reminded of a story that Brother Hagin used to tell. He was pastoring a church, small church, one of the three different churches he pastored during the 12-year period of his, the beginning part of his ministry. And there was a fellow that showed up in his town. He, had, he knew of the fellow but didn't know him personally. And he just showed up and found out whether the... the uh, he could get in touch with Brother Hagen. So they went out to lunch or started fellowship in some way or another. And Brother Hagen found out from the guy that he didn't have any money. He had ridden the bus as far as the money he had would take him. And that was to this town that Brother Hagen was in. And it was getting pretty close to Christmas time. These were depression days. And Brother Hagin said that while he was talking to the fellow, the Lord told him to give him the money that he had saved up to have Christmas with his family. Now, as I said, it was during the time of the depression. And so it wasn't a lot of money. It was $10. But that's what Brother Hagin had gathered and saved to be able to have the Christmas with his family. And so he's sitting there at the diner with this fella and the guy's talking about something and Brother Hagin's arguing with the Lord. He's telling the Lord why he can't give him that $10. He's telling him that's all the money I've got. If I give this 
to this guy, like you said, we won't have any Christmas for my family. So long story short, he finally decided to do what the Lord said. He knew he was going to have to. So he gave the fellow the $10, just flabbergasted the guy. He was able to get back to his family and able to have family a Christmas for his family. Brother Hagen didn't have anything, so they skipped Christmas. There was nothing, no money at his available for him to use, and so they just went without a Christmas. Ten months later, there was a lady that went to his church whose sister was in the insane asylum. And she wasn't a danger to anybody, to herself or anybody else. And so the sister talked the doctors at the hospital into letting her come home with her, her sister. So they did. And when she brought her sister home, she called Brother Hagen and asked if he'd come pray for her. Well, he, he did. He and his wife got in the car and drove over to the, the house, the sister's house. And Brother Hagen said that when he walked into the room, they started to pray. And within just a few minutes, the Lord spoke to Brother Hagen and said, go stand by the foot of the bed and point your finger at her and to call out the spirits that had her bound to command them to turn loose of her and let her go. Well, Brother Hagin argued with the Lord about that. Long story short, he agreed to do it. Stood at the foot of the bed and pointed at her and told the evil spirits to come out of her. And they did. They stayed there for a little longer, fellowshipping. Her mind was just as clear and just as sharp as if it had never happened. The sister wound up taking him back the next day or two. The doctors couldn't find anything wrong with her. Turned her loose, sent her home. But Brother Hagen, after he had commanded the evil spirits to leave her body, he said the Lord spoke to him. And he said this, if you hadn't agreed with me or if you hadn't obeyed me in that $10 10 months ago, I couldn't have used you on this. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Folks, your tithing has more to do with just with your life than just your finances. That's the greater blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Paul talked about giving to the church 
when he wrote letters to the churches. And he said this. When he was encouraging people to give, and it wasn't to him, he was encouraging them to give to the saints in Jerusalem who were under real severe poverty conditions because of the persecution that was being brought against them. When he would encourage people, churches, other churches, to take up offerings for the ones that were in trouble. He said, I don't want you to do this for my benefit. I want this so that your so that fruit can abound to your account. The devil has always been there to speak to people's hearts or to whisper in their ears to say that the pastor's just looking for more money. And folks, we're not. But there are people in this room right now who need to settle the money issue once and for all. And I very firmly believe that it's because he wants to use us in greater measure in these last days. But if we don't deal with the money issue once and for all, there are going to be situations where he can't use us even though he would want to to help and benefit other people. Now there's all kinds of criticism and all kinds of excuses people will give like tithing is for the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled the tithe. Well if that was the case then Paul must not have known that when he wrote to the Hebrews. Because here he said that here men received tithes. They were still paying tithes because the temple hadn't been destroyed. It was probably 62, 63, maybe 64 A.D. And the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. But if that had been the case, if Jesus had fulfilled the tithe, then Paul would have told the, the church that the Jews were still operating under the law. But he didn't. He said, here men receive tithes. But there, meaning in heaven, it's witness that Jesus is alive. Well, if that was true for them, that would have to be true for us. Our paying of tithes, the tenth of everything that we own, is a witness that Jesus is alive. Who would give money to a dead God? But if one is alive, then our tithes and our offerings proclaim that we believe in that life. And that our heart is toward God just as Abram's was when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. Wouldn't it be a shame to get to heaven and find out that God wanted to use us for things that we weren't in a position to be used for because we were concerned about what was going to happen with our money. Can you think of any greater sorrow than if we found out that that was the case? 
I'm not sure all of what God's going to do. But I am convinced that it's going to be a big thing. I believe that there will be healing miracles in these last days. I believe there will be financial miracles in these last days. I believe that the same work of the Holy Ghost that took place in the early days of the church will take place in the latter days of the church in even greater measure. These are days of the Holy Spirit. These are days to be led by the Spirit of God. These are days to prove who we're worth. These are days to prove that God's word is true. These are days to give our whole hearts to God. And if giving our heart to God can be done in just something as insignificant as far as eternity is concerned as money then why would we not want to do that let's pray Father thank you for your goodness Lord, speak to our hearts. Speak to every one of your children here, Lord. Open our eyes to the fullness of what you have planned for us in these last days. Lord, speak words of confidence words of blessing to your people, Lord. I pray that every person here that struggled over money, struggled over the tithe, I pray that everyone would surrender and deal with the money issue once and for all. Lord, you said that Abraham is a nation or Israel has an, as a nation had robbed you. But when they obeyed what you said to do, you turned things around for the whole country. I pray that you would do the same thing for your people today. We know that it's not a matter of the money itself, but the condition of our hearts. So Lord, I thank you that as people make the commitment to tithe once and for all, that you do show yourself strong and open the windows of heaven unto them 
and pour out a blessing upon them that, that goes beyond just finances. But that affects and influences every other area of their lives too. I thank you, Father, for rebuking the, the devourer for their sakes. I thank you, Father, for showing them yourself to be greater and more merciful than they ever could have imagined you to be. Lord, don't let anything get in our way that would hinder us from being used by you to bring healing and deliverance unto those that are hungry for him. We pray this in the holy and matchless name of Jesus Christ.